Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, still overseas, Paul. We're still making it happen. Lots is going on. To kick it off, we should talk about two things. One, the World Cup has come to an end and it's kind of a bummer, but... We also now have Avatar, Way of the Water, that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, where last week I did say a couple things that you called me out on, that I wasn't going to see it, and then two, that I wasn't going to do well, and I completely regret everything I've said. Well, to bump up your self-esteem a little, I will say, episode 42, anyone wants to go back and listen, we predicted France-Argentina World Cup final. So, um, you know, it's not all bad. We did. You're, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> but I also predicted that Avatar was going to crush it. It's tracking between 100 and 175 million US, which would be a shade under some of the Marvel movies like Black Panther 2 and Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, but healthy and certainly more than its predecessor. But like we said last week, Avatar 1 didn't actually crush opening weekend. I mean, Avatar 1 made 77 million in its debut. Depending on COVID, given that there's a COVID surge right now, so that might have an effect on it. Friday opening was 53 million, which is pretty impressive. It's James Cameron's biggest Friday opening ever. And then 450 to 550 globally. And I'll say this, like, I'm going to be in Dubai. I'm traveling right now. I'm going to a wedding anniversary in Oman, and I'm going to be in Dubai. I actually thought, like, I have a whole day in Dubai. Do I go and spend three and a half hours watching this movie? Because basically, consensus is that cinematically, it is gorgeous, it's beautiful, it tops the first one, and they recorded two and three together. So there's another one that's going to come out in two years. I listened to an interview with James Cameron, and man, this guy is just such a badass. I know. I think it'll do well. It's not going to have the legs of Avatar 1, meaning I don't think it's going to make $5 billion, but certainly a huge weekend. But I don't know if I if I were in Dubai for 24 hours, I don't know if I would see it during those <laughs> yeah, 24 hours. No, I, I'm, I'm probably not. I messaged my friend. He's like, um, I don't know if we should spend three and a half hours plus 30 minutes of previews sitting in the movie theater while we're in Dubai. But I'll, I'll, right. I'll say this. Cameron just seems to have this like, I don't know what it is. He touches everything and turns into gold. To your point from last week, it's more that the more people say how amazing it is to watch from a movie experience the more chances more and more people are going to it. One of the things that it does have working against it, though, is that it is three and a half hours long, and so that means fewer show times, and that means fewer limited 
IMAX 3D and 3D theaters showing it. So that could affect numbers as well. And I wonder if they thought about that going in. I'm sure he, apparently he cut it down from like, it was like five or six hours. Six hours. Jeez. And that doesn't even include the other one that they're making. You know what? I don't like seeing movies unless they're 10 hours. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kidding, obviously. Let's switch gears to some Warner HBO Max updates, which is a recurring topic in Better Call Paul land because there's so much interesting stuff going on with new CEO, new overlords, new direction and content. You know, Westworld, it got canceled in after season four, right after season four, within a couple of weeks of season four debuting. So probably September. And then it was just announced that it is also not going to be on HBO Max anymore. And presumably that's to cut costs and to reduce residuals payments because the union talent in streaming shows gets royalties for exploitation of their content on platforms. So if it's not on the platform being monetized. So, so Paul, if a show is canceled, so then that basically gets them out of residual payments to a cast versus like, hey, we're just going to end the series and not have it on. So basically think of it as it's super oversimplification. You get paid for your initial services when the show is made. And then residuals are a function of after the show is initially released or its initial window, you know, after the first six months, then there's ongoing payments, which are a fraction of what you made when you first rendered services for the show that are intended to sort of just, you know, it's like a royalty payment. So once they stop exploiting the show, you don't get residuals. The residuals, think of it as like a royalty stream. Right. So you can cut costs in two ways. You can cancel season five because however much it costs to make the episode, I'm sure the show is pretty expensive. And then if you stop exploiting the back seasons, then you don't have to pay residuals to the talent that is entitled to that. The interesting thing about Westworld is that big production Produced by J.J. Abrams, starring Evan Rachel Wood, Thandie Noon, Ed Harris, Jeffrey Wright, Tessa Thompson, Aaron Paul, James Martin. That's a big cast. Oh, so production budget was massive. And I was a pretty big fan. I watched season one, season two, season three. I was pretty invested. And then season four, I watched two episodes and that was it. I just stopped watching it. I don't care about it anymore. I think what goes into that decision must have something to do with like, this doesn't have that staying power where people are like coming and watching and repeating Westworld like they would with the Game of Thrones or something else. So it's like, why pay residuals when like people aren't even coming to watch this? The show just seemed to like, it just lost a bit of its, uh, like no one's really talking about Westworld anymore. I thought season one was amazing. Anything with Anthony Hopkins, like I'm a big fan of Anthony Hopkins. Season two was like, okay, it's running out of steam a little, but it's still good. Like, I don't mind watching it, but it was like, not what I expected. Season three, I didn't even make it through all of season three. I mean, I like Aaron Paul, but I liked him a lot more <laughs> yeah. in Breaking Bad. Yeah. And it was a little bit too dystopian, like the real world LA. So I think I, I think season three is kind of where I was just like, I don't want to sit through these. And I didn't, I mean, season four, I didn't watch. And Zaslav's a bright guy. He He's a cost guy and he knows Euphoria is in the zeitgeist. It's in the Emmy conversation. It resonates with young viewers. So boom, we're going to renew it. House of Dragon, enough said, right? Our largest audience ever, we're, we're bringing that back, right? But things like Westworld or The Nevers, which was actually canceled halfway through season one, if there's not a big audience and it's expensive, you're looking at a spreadsheet. I mean, it's not that 
complicated, right? If it's like the audience is small and the expenses are high, then just kill it. I mean, that's kind of the model. Yeah, and they're making room for The Last of Us, which is based on the video game, the super popular video game, Pedro Pascal. It's coming out soon, which is going to be like their other big budget production, which I've actually heard is phenomenal. So it makes sense to like cut costs for like the heavy production and, and it's just not working to like, let's just go all in on like another show that could be the next Game of Thrones for us. From a fan perspective, it may take a season or two for a show to really take off. So you do want to have some patience and right, like sometimes yeah. the first season you're sort of like establishing the characters and building out the story and something can really take off. And you do want to have like not the shortest leech imaginable for things that can like get better over time. But if it's super expensive, which I'm sure Westworld had to be, and the audience is dwindling, I think it makes sense. And it didn't seem like they had the same juice. Like the writing just wasn't as tight and the story, it wasn't as cohesive as the first season. It just felt like to me, if it was a one season show, it would have been like very highly regarded because it was thought provoking and this and that. And then in the in the cinematic universe, the DC Studios universe, there hasn't been an announcement on Wonder Woman 3 to my knowledge, but Patty Jenkins tweeted that she didn't choose to leave the project. She's no longer associated with the project. If you saw Wonder Woman 1984, I don't think you'd be surprised. Oh my god. That there's no if they <laughs> if they go in a different direction for Wonder Woman 3, it was just announced, you know, James Gunn announced that Henry Cavill is not going to be Superman. They're going to go in a different direction, have a younger character. And as we talked about a couple episodes ago, James Gunn and Peter Safran are the, the new sort of co-heads of DC film. And they're going to have their own DNA. And they're going to tell the stories they want to tell with the characters and cast that they want to use. So it's like the Snyderverse is over. And then I hear they actually cut Gal Gadot and Henry Cavill's cameos from The Flash just to even like just further distance themselves from that lexicon. Look, it makes sense. If you're bringing a James Gunn in, who's also, he makes stuff and he makes stuff great. He rebooted Suicide Squad. People love the new Suicide Squad versus the first one. Then from there, they had Peacemaker, you know, one of the more popular shows in general on HBO, let alone one of the DC shows. So I bet he knows what he's doing. Start out younger, build like a big universe. You could potentially bring in Henry Cavill later down the road. I'm sure they'll have cameos when they're older. There's talks about Ben Affleck directing one of the films for them. He's a great director. So He's an amazing director. I'm like, God, gone, baby, gone, Argo. The town. Exactly, the town. I mean, those were fantastic movies. So I'm very excited about it. I mean, like, I love Henry Cavill. Didn't but. he and Matt Damon write and direct Goodwill Hunting, or they just wrote it? I don't. Maybe they didn't direct. No, it. so they they wrote it, and then Gus Van Zant directed it, and obviously they got Robin Williams to play in it. But like, yeah, like Ben Affleck's a talented not only actor but I think more so filmmaker. So I'm very excited to see what they do here. It seems like the right move. Like, hey, like if we're gonna start fresh, we gotta like cut everything. I think those are the hard things to do, and. I'm sure fans will understand when they see something that they love. Agreed. The pressure's on now, but he gets the fresh start that he needs to launch the studio the way he wants to. And I'll be watching. I know you will too. And I'll be watching Guardians of the Galaxy 3. He's got some exciting stuff going on. And the holiday special on Disney+. Plus. The holiday special was amazing, by the way. If you haven't watched the holiday special, it's like 40 minutes of just pure joy. 
So watch the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. James Gunn makes a 40-minute Christmas special. It was a lot of fun. I will have to check it out. But actually, let's take a quick break because we got a jam-packed episode for you this week. Coming back, Tory Lanez is on trial for assaulting Meg the Stallion. And we have the juicy details coming up. So, Mesh, I wasn't aware of this story when it happened. Same. But apparently, July 2020, there was a party at Kylie Jenner's house. Meg the Stallion and Tory Lanez and Kelsey Harris were leaving the party. They'd been drinking. There was an argument in the car. I guess Meg gets out of the car. Tory Lanez, allegedly, I mean, he hasn't admitted this, but this is the allegation. Allegedly, he points the gun out the car window and shoots Meg the Stallion five times in the feet and says, dance, bitch. And Jeez. at the time, and these are all allegations. This haven't been proven. It's a criminal trial happening right now. He maintains his innocence, but I'm just telling you what sort of the state's argument is. At the time, you know, they were having an argument. He was playing around. He, he apparently, you know, he didn't intend to shoot her. And police got involved, right? Because there was a shooting. The police pulled the car over. At the time, she said that she stepped in glass. She didn't say that she was shot. And... She said that prior to the police arriving, Tory Lanez offered her and her assistant slash best friend, Kelsey Harris, $1 million each to not say anything about the shooting because he was on probation. And that would have had really you know significant implications for him. He could have been deported. Right. So at the time, she said she stepped in glass and they sort of like didn't really advance it. But then she had to have all the surgery. She's still in pain. They had to remove like bullet fragments. She had trouble walking. She has nerve damage. And then she has all the mental anguish. And she said, you know, she's really suffering. She's not happy anymore. She doesn't have long conversations with people. She even said that she'd rather be dead. She wished that she had just, if it were up to her, it would have almost been better if he had shot her dead as opposed to letting her live in this state. That's terrible. And she says it's also been harmful for her career. And also the fact that she is testifying against him has been bad for her career. And interestingly... In September, Kelsey Harris did an 80-minute interview where she talked about the shooting and how he shot out of the car and how they had been drinking heavily and they had a slight argument. Apparently, they were both sort of romantically involved with Tory Lanez and he was using that to sort of pit them against each other, kind of creating like a jealousy vibe. And then Meg Thee Stallion apparently commented about how her rap career was doing better than his and that made him upset. And, um, you know, so there was some of that. And then interestingly, right after this happened, she texted Meg's security guard that the bo- the bodyguard. Yeah, the bodyguard. She said, Tori shot Meg 911. And she also texted Meg saying, I'm still injured because he like pulled me out of the car by my hair or something. So she's like, should I go to urgent care? And then at trial, she completely denies she's basically like, I don't remember anything. I can't say whether he, I didn't see him shoot her. I'm not aware of what happened. I, you know, everything's really blurry. I was drinking. So the DA was like, well, what happened between September when you had like this very clear recollection? It was lucid. You gave us an 80 minute interview and now you're sitting on the stand and you don't remember anything. And because of that, because she did a 180, the judge actually played the entire interview in court. Oh, man. Yeah. So it's crazy. That's got to be. And wait, how does that work as evidence then? Like if you if you're on tape 
admitting to like, hey, I'm describing the evening. She's saying all these things. And then she's on trial and she's saying like, I don't remember. Um, you know, it was a long night. We were under the influence. She said a lot of traumatic stuff has happened to me since then, like stress. And I lost a friend. I don't remember. Like, can you basically say like, oh, because if you say I made that stuff up, you're lying. But if you're saying like, I don't remember saying that, like, how does that balance in court? So, I mean, this stuff is going to go to the jury, right? And like, it all hinges on the rules of evidence. So generally speaking, if you have a witness that's testifying at trial and they're under oath, they're supposed to be telling the truth and there can be penalties if they don't. But if the prosecutors or someone has evidence or recording a statement that would cause one to question the witness's testimony at trial, meaning there is like a 180, you can sometimes admit that and say, well, this is really critical to so that the jury can get her credibility, right? Because had she not made that 80-minute recording, then perhaps what she says at trial carries a little bit more weight because what she's saying is, oh, I don't really remember. And actually, technically, I never saw him shoot anyone. She never mentioned anything about the million-dollar bribe. So she should have probably thought that if you make a 80-minute video that's recorded in the in the presence of the sort of ADA and law enforcement, it could potentially be used. <laughs> yeah. uh, but she's not on trial here. She's just a witness. The person on trial is Daystar Peterson, which is Tory Lanez's real name. And the ironic thing is she and Meg the Stallion were a, at one point best friends. And then prior to this incident, that she worked for her. And now they're estranged. And she has gone on record and said, like, Megan needs to retract her statements. She's smearing this guy's name. She's doing all this damage. Like, she's blowing this out of proportion. And so to have, like, text text messages with her bodyguard saying he shot her, I wouldn't know what to believe. But I think it's fair if you're the prosecutor to say, well, let's admit this video anyway, because it's just too hard to understand if she's telling the truth. And by the way, she asked for immunity before testifying. And 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 she's been asserting her Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. I read that in the Rolling Stone because she said, can I use my Fifth Amendment right here? And then they asked, like, well, why don't you want to answer the question? So there's clearly something up. I mean, she did admit, according to the Rolling Stone, she did admit to sending the text to Megan's bodyguard, which to you, you said earlier, quote, help, Tory shot Meg 911. And she had said that around the fallout, she said something around, um, she's painted the picture that I betrayed her, referring to Megan. She's painted the picture that I'm this bad person, bad friend, that I took hush money. There are many lies, she testified. To then ask Harris about the alleged lies, were there accusations about you having shot Megan? She asked, there were, Harris replied. So there's multiple viewpoints on the same night from different people. It's weird. In Tory Lane's defense, the state has not proven that his DNA was on the weapon. No one is saying that they actually saw him shoot her. This is all very circumstantial. Like, he may have pulled the trigger. The gun may have been pointed in the direction. But, like, no one is actually saying they saw it happen. And, well, maybe Meg is now. But the night of the incident, she didn't say that. She said she stepped in glass. So she's also changing her story. And... That impacts credibility. Now, she's saying, well, you know, black people and black women in general, you know, we have a distrust for police officers. We don't generally think they're on our side. So it's reasonable for me, especially in light of all the George Floyd stuff that had been happening at the time, 
it's reasonable for me to not trust them and to not be completely transparent with them. But you'd think if someone shot you, you would probably say something about it, you know, the night that it happened. So that doesn't really help her side of it of the argument. Or there'd be hospital records, right? Wouldn't there be hospital records? I mean, unless you just went home and it was a graze and you wrapped it yourself. But if you were shot, you'd probably go to the hospital. Right, but the hospital records don't prove who pulled the trigger. Right, but it can say that she was shot. Right. They can say that she has bullet fragments in her leg that will prove that she may have been shot, but it doesn't prove who pulled the trigger. And and unless you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that uh, Tory Lanez pulled the trigger, he's not. So it's not enough that she was shot. She has to have been shot by Tory Lanez, and that has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's why the state added. So there's three charges. There's the assault, you know, with a deadly firearm illegal possession of a concealed firearm. And also they added negligent discharge of a firearm. So even if he didn't know he was shooting her, he took like an unreasonable amount of risk. He was reckless with the gun pointing in her direction, trying to make her dance. So the state's going at it from a couple different angles. But I think if the state were to prevail on all three charges, he'd be facing 20 plus years in prison and also potentially deportation. Uh, but if it's just negligence, it's going to be a much lesser sentence. He may be able to get off entirely. I mean, I, I just don't know, but that's why they're having the trial. And then I think bigger picture, like the policy side of this is Meg Thee Stallion is catching a lot of flack in the internet community on, on social media for testifying against Tory Lanes and for even just bringing this up. A lot of people are actually taking his side and saying that he's the victim. She said that he's been gaining fame and notoriety from this and her career has been damaged. And all of these things are really just like a double standard in society where we just don't expect, and this isn't you know my opinion or anything, but this is just, I'm just quoting what's out there. A lot of people are saying that like black women can't get support against black males in these sorts of issues. They're just supposed to sort of not complain, I guess. And, and that's a really tough thing, right? Because- if she was shot, that's a you know incredibly traumatic experience. But then to go against your accuser and try to you know help the state secure justice and to get negative feedback or have your career damaged as a result of that, it just makes it ten times worse. And so she should be really she should be applauded if this all really happened for speaking out and for not being quiet about it because you know it's not an easy thing to do to sort of stand up for yourself in a world that's sort of male-dominated. Uh, I guess we'll just have to keep watching to see what the what happens with the trial and update everyone. Let's take a break, and then we're going to talk about some privacy law in California. So, Mesh, I know it's not the sexiest topic. Privacy and data are actually so integral to the way we consume content and use the internet that they really touch every aspect of the deals that I do. And if you represent platforms or companies or anyone that you know sells ads or has customers over the internet, you have to be aware of privacy and data security. And California has sort of been on the cutting edge of this. And they're in the cutting edge of a lot of things. Like they were the first state to pass name, image, and likeness legislation for NCAA athletes. They're on the cutting edge of things like emission standards and, and clean energy standards for the country. 
And they're also, you know, very strict in terms of privacy and data security. And so in September, they passed this law called the California Age Appropriate Design Code Act, which, like I said, was signed into law in September. And it is actually very broad and it has wide reaching implications. So basically, it applies to any for profit business that provides an online service, product, or feature that is likely to be accessed by children. And children is defined as anyone who's under the age of 18, which, if you think about it, you know, in the broadest sense, any online product or feature that is accessed by anyone who's under the age of 18, that could literally be anything. That could be social media, gaming, news, sports, online shopping. I mean, literally any company that's online, which is essentially every tech company, and actually most companies in general. And so what does that mean? Do they have to like, one, do you, if you're under 18, do you have to let them know that you're under 18? so that they can make the distinction? That's a great question. So let me get into what it actually does, right? So, and it's well-meaning. Um, let me just say this, because the intention, if you read the text of it, it's like, well, we want to protect our kids. We want, you know, any of these businesses that are potentially targeted to kids to employ the utmost privacy standards. But it's, it says like things like, you have to do an impact assessment every two years. And before you can launch any new feature or element that would be, accessed by kids. And kids, like I said, is anyone under 18. You have to identify like the purpose of your service, how you use kids' personal information, any risks that would actually potentially harm kids from you know, your business. And if to the extent you have privacy settings for kids, they have to be set to, the default has to be the most restrictive settings. You have to estimate the age of your users on your platform and only sort of give them content that's appropriate to their age. If you are tracking them or if there's technology on your site that could allow their parents or third parties or yourself to track them, you have to make all the tracking implementation very clear. The privacy policy has to be simple and easy to understand. So it's like not the kind of thing where you'd have to call me to have me explain what this means because like not everyone, especially kids, don't you shouldn't need a law degree to understand the terms and conditions of a website and what they can do with your data. Those are the requirements. And there's a couple of things that the statute prohibits using personal information in a way that could harm a child, profiling kids without a compelling reason to do it, collecting, selling, or disclosing their location data, retaining more information than is necessary. So those are sort of the prohibitions. And for, if a company is found to have violated the statute, it's a $2,500 fine for affected child for any negligent violation. And that goes to 7,500 per affected child for intentional violations. So if you were like a massive platform with like millions and millions of like kids, essentially, and you made one hiccup where they, you know, something was violated, you would potentially own, you could be charged like $2,500 times, like potentially how many people that affected? So like tens of thousands to millions of people? Yeah. I mean, you could face billion-dollar fines. Jeez. Oh, There's no private right of action. So the only person who can bring these fines is the Attorney General of California. But nonetheless, it's a 2,500 per person. California has 40 million residents. How many of them are kids? I don't know. Maybe call it 10, um, maybe slightly more yeah. than that. So imagine the scope of that penalty could be really, really significant. So that's the law. And it just net choice just sued in the Northern District of California, declaring that the law is unconstitutional. 
So NetChoice is a trade organization. It is basically every big tech company. So its members are Amazon, Meta, Google, Lyft, Expedia, TikTok, Twitter, PayPal, and a bunch of others. So basically any company that uses data or has an internet presence is a member of NetChoice. And they actually are contesting this as being overbroad, unconstitutional. It's a violation of the First Amendment, which protects free speech. It's preempted by COPPA, which is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which is federal law that applies only to sites that knowingly collect information of people who are under the age of 13. And they're basically saying, hey, while this may have been designed as a way to protect children, really what it does is it's because it's so broad and so vague and really hard to understand, what it's going to end up doing is regulating the content and the speech that our websites and platforms sort of have. And you're not allowed to regulate speech unless, I mean, there's very limited circumstances where speech can be regulated. And this is beyond all of those boundaries. So Net Choice is saying, hey, this law should not be enforceable. It's unconstitutional. It's a violation of the California Constitution, the federal Constitution, and it's preempted by COPPA. And they had a very compelling argument as to why. But the question is, you know, you're you're a business guy. Is Net Choice, is their argument that this thing is overbroad? Are they doing it because they care about consumers or because the members of NetChoice want to keep using data the way they do? I would assume the latter, but I think it's also probably like it limits their capability or to make any changes around this would just be really, really large costs to change anything around it. Or it's just taking a lot of risk where they could risk potentially getting fined millions and millions of dollars. So I can imagine why they would test it. I mean, obviously, look, Sure. Does everyone care about their users? Let's assume that everyone does care about their users, but also like how do they, these companies only exist because they have to monetize off their users and, and data is a big part of that. Right. That was part of NetChoice's argument. It's like having tracking isn't all bad, right? It allows us to recommend content to people, knowing their preferences makes it for a customized experience while using the web. Furthermore, the web is supposed to be open, right? Like we shouldn't be People should be able to access all of human knowledge with a few clicks of their mouse or a few keystrokes because that's the way the web was envisioned. And we're willing to live by reasonable uh, standards to protect privacy. And we have them in COPPA, which is the Federal Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And so exactly. we're complying with COPPA. COPPA is a very well-established regime that is federal law that applies to anyone under 13 and it requires the kids to get their parents' consent if we're using their data in a way that would sort of implicate FTC guidelines. And that's nationwide. So if the federal government really cares that much about this issue and they want to expand it to anyone under 18, because currently it's anyone under 13, then let's have a let's have Congress decide that. But California shouldn't be taking the lead, making this very strict rule that only applies to one subset of the population and creates this unworkable framework for the rest of the country. And and I get that. And I also get that maybe where they're landing is like, this is way too broad, it's unclear, and we could meet you in the middle, right? Like if we knew exactly what you were trying to protect and you could make a very specific rule that was like the three-prong test, if you want to regulate speech, is it has to achieve a compelling government interest 
It has to be narrowly tailored to serve that interest, and it has to be the least restrictive means available to achieve that interest. So if it's overcorrecting or chilling speech or regulating speech and it's overbroad, it can't be allowed to stand. But if it's very narrow and specific, then the sort of cost benefit goes the other way and maybe the law can be upheld. So I think part of what they're saying is like, you need to go back to the drawing board on this because it's way too broad. We don't understand it. A reasonable person couldn't understand it. And the impact it's going to have is it's just going to make every site assume the worst and then basically just make all the content gated to people above the age of 18, which is not really what they want anyway. So, I mean, I do think the state law as passed does seem very broad to me, but I don't know that I buy Net Choice's argument either. I think that's probably going to be something in the middle. And I'm curious to see what the judge says. The judge is either going to decide this or or have a trial where both sides present their arguments. But I think what might end up happening is parts of this are going to get struck down and parts of it might survive and it may be narrowed. That's what seems to be, I mean, I think most probable. And like, you know, to one last thing I'll say personally is that now and the world is a bit different where kids under 18 you know, they're on social media, they're probably shopping online, whether they're using their parents' card or not, or have their own money, everything they do is online. It's not like a small population of people. It's a pretty massive one and growing. I think 50% of kids under the age of 15 use Roblox. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like that's just, like, we like we're talking about gaming, we're talking about streaming, we're con- consumption of content, TikTok, et cetera. I'm like, that's a pretty massive population. So I can understand why, they'd be like, look, dude, you got to narrow this down and you can't just like throw this out there. Like this is, you know, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars here. So um, I'll be, I'll be curious to see what happens. Um, But I think that was a good breakdown, Paul. Thanks for uh, bringing this unsexy thing that is actually pretty educational to our attention. Well, it's going to impact if it, it, either way, if the law is upheld, it's going to impact every internet business, right? Every social media platform, every gaming company, Uh, Every online store is going to have to abide by because California is such a huge chunk of the U.S. population and it's going to be replicated. Um, If it gets knocked down, then it's sort of business as usual. But what's probably going to happen is something in in between. And um, like you said, in this era, entertainment is really content plus technology and it can't exist without the Internet. Well, as always, good breakdown, Paul. This was a jam-packed show. We, we covered a lot here. But that is our show for this week, folks. And make sure you have a great holiday week that's upcoming. And go watch Avatar. Let us know what you think. Happy goodbye to the World Cup. If you're traveling, be safe, including you, Mesh. Have a safe flight. Thank you, bro. I appreciate it. And uh, make sure you're following us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you choose to get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Better Call Paul the Podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lacani. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera and Marco Seiler Gonzalez. Have a great week. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, Paul. Take care. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>